Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight, we welcome back Laura Sworn's TJ Hafer. Hello, hello. And we also welcome freelance writer Fraser Brown. Hello. And today, we are going to be talking about a brand new series. (laughs) (laughs) I had to double check because I I wasn't sure they'd done this. But the proper name of this game is not Total War Thrones of Britannia. It is Total War Saga Thrones of Britannia. uh, Which is sort of the inaugural installment of a new... Uh, branch of the Total War series, I suppose. And, uh, you know, TJ, why don't we start with you here? What the hell is a Total War saga, and what's the big idea with Thrones of Britannia? I mean, if I was going to be really unkind, I guess I could call it Total War Junior, um, but that's <laughs> that's on the pessimistic end of the scale. What they're actually trying to do, which I think in terms of objectives is is kind of the way I would want them to go with the series is doing these smaller time periods, focusing on a smaller area of the world, but not giving up any of the uh, kind of breadth in terms of like the map. Well, the map is just Britain and Ireland in, in Thrones of Britannia, but it's like the same number of provinces that made up the entire world map in Total War Attila. So it's just kind of zoomed in. Um, there, there's more focus on, you know, characters and these kind of story events that pop up for the different factions, which I think is a cool way to go with it. Um, I think some of the smaller, more focused campaigns have historically been better than the grand campaigns. Um, especially thinking back to like Caesar in Gaul for Rome too, and like the Belisarius campaign in Attila, I thought were really well done. Yeah, Fraser, what do you uh what do what do you make of all this? It's kind of a weird one, and when I was reviewing it, I kept going back and forth and feel like wondering, does this really feel new? It's a spin-off, like it's an official mm-hmm. spin-off, it's the beginning of a new series of Total War games. It should kind of make an impact. And I think there are some tweaks to the the formula that they've made that are actually quite bold. But I, I couldn't help shake the feeling that it's a lot like just Napoleon, Shogun 2, Attila. It's things that we've seen them do already focusing on flashpoints in history or very specific locations. And yet it's it's weird to call it a spin-off. Like I, I don't I'm not sure it hundred percent justifies saga. <laughs> it could just be total war thrones of britannia you know no especially because i think something i was expecting from like the the idea that these are going to be sagas is that there would be like a really clear through line or a or a cool angle on the campaign that differentiates itself from the more sandboxy strategy that uh typifies a lot of the total war series and here, I do feel like this is of a piece with things like, uh, yeah, Napoleon Total War, particularly the um, like Peninsula campaign, uh, you know, DLC they did for that, or mm-hmm. 
or frankly, we've seen this done better, perhaps, with like campaigns like Follow the Samurai for Shogun 2. Uh, you know, this on the one hand, it is a really focused, uh, you know, entry in the Total War series, focusing on a very specific place and time. But at the same time, it almost feels like it almost feels like a fan mod of Total War about a conflict that somebody was really, really into, right? Where like basically we've reskinned the map and we've created this like total Brexit vision view of England where like the country is just <laughs> fucking massive. Like the entire world is the British Isles uh in, in this game. And uh you know the, the the hook is that it's in the age of you know the the, the Viking invasions, and uh, you know Alfred's consolidation of uh, Wessex in uh, you know in, in the south of England. But there's nothing about this game that makes those concepts feel alive and vibrant to me in a weird way. And I, maybe you guys felt differently, but for me, I was kind of looking for a game that brought the story of Alfred or Guthrum uh, or, yeah. you know, the, the, you know, the, the high Kings in, in Ireland would bring those specific story to bring those sagas to life. And it really doesn't. What it does is it gives me a giant, <laughs> it gives me a giant reskinned map around the theme of um, like old, you know, old England, Britannia, but it doesn't give me, a compelling specific strategy game around it well and like they try to kind of give you that experience with the there's sort of in lieu of an extra campaign mechanic it's like every faction gets a campaign storyline that's kind of a series of events that leads them to do certain things the thing is like i didn't find that they really mattered out of the three factions i played i didn't even complete my faction storyline in two of them, like the um, the the North the Northumbrian Vikings, they're supposed to like uh, avenge the death of Ragnar, and it's like I had I had won the game and like defeated the Norman invaders and everything, and it never told me like whether or not I avenged the death of Ragnar. There was like zero closure to that, and then um, as Dublin, the the Sea Kings in Dublin. Um, you're supposed to, uh, I don't even remember what their storyline was. I just remember I got to a point where I was supposed to make a, an alliance with a specific faction who hated me to advance the story. And I was never able to do that. And so I never finished their storyline. Like the only one I finished was, uh, the Kirkin Scots have their stone of destiny thing. And that one I actually was able to complete within the space of a campaign, but it just felt like they weren't well well put together to actually have these events guide you along in a logical way that you know you even get to see the end of it by the time the campaign is over the the thing is there the some of these quests evoke the warhammer quests where you'd go to a location you'd fight an epic battle but they didn't have those kind of truly because some of the scripted battles in warhammer are really cool but you didn't have you were like besieging random settlements because the quest would sort of change i think depending on the borders and who you were at war with perhaps um but it was just kind of random go here kill these people and you don't even get something rad at the end of it I mean, the Stone of Destiny is a literal fucking stone. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, 
I know up here we get kind of sentimental about it for some reason, but it is actually shit. <laughs> <laughs> what is so, it? I mean, even gameplay-wise, it's just like a buff that you kind of forget yeah. even exists after a few turns. And it, whereas you get like a rad sword or piece of armor in Warhammer, and it would just. I mean, those quests weren't brilliant, but they were nice little diversions. But here it's like, here's this, that's meant to be the defining quest, the storyline of your faction. And it's it's not really a storyline. The the more kind of random stuff that comes you come across, like assassinations and plots and revolts, they're more interesting stories than a series of battles that you do to get a buff. So for me, I think I also got off really on the wrong foot with this game because I made a mistake. Not a, No, this shouldn't have been a mistake. But I think it ended up pointing out some issues I have with the strategy layer as a whole. Uh, I decided, because I'm super high on The Last Kingdom right now on Netflix. Yeah, it's so good, uh, isn't it? Oh, man. Yeah. Just, just inject that high production value Bernard Cornwell crap straight into my veins uh just sexy vikings out for revenge 24 7 um so I'm, I'm really high on that so i was like you know what hell of it i'm gonna be i'm gonna be alfred i'm gonna be king it's, alfred of Wessex. and i was like this campaign's gonna be awesome like i'm here here is the line in the sand i am drawing i'm gonna defend the south of england and i'm gonna send those viking invaders packing well, Alfred is already kind of in the late game when you when you start the campaign. Like compared to every other faction on the map, Alfred has a massive kingdom already. His economy is rolling. Like a lot of other campaigns, when you start them, you're in that familiar total war loop of like you're just above subsistence and like you really have to trade off carefully to figure out how you want to sort of scaffold up your power. Not so King uh, King Alfred. He can just he can just start drafting mass armies basically. Like he's he's practically like about to enter the industrial revolution he's got like five vassals it's it's ridiculous yeah and so i just like i'm like okay there's a lot to come to grips with here let me just start surveying the kind of empire i've got because with this much stuff in it there must be a lot of like cool technology and decisions i can have in ways i can specialize these settlements and then i looked it over and in fact it sort of felt like, there were no decisions uh, about how I could, like, specialize settlements and sort of, like, s- like specifically tailor my empire around what I needed. Like, every single settlement was of such a... It's familiar, it's familiar from, the, from what they've been doing basically ever since Rome 2, where you've got... Uh, settlements that have they, they fit an archetype, right? There's the farming settlement, the the mining settlement, etc. But I've never felt like it was this restrictive. Like, and that's saying something. No. I thought it was pretty damn restrictive in Rome too. But like, I've come to grips with that system and the sort of series of binaries it gives you, and the ways like it differentiates the provinces from each other. I don't think it's a perfect system, but there is some logic to it. Here. It really feels like geography is destiny to an incredible degree uh, with each province you develop. And really, it's just a matter of waiting until you get cash to unlock everything. It's a lot more fun when you're at war because you have all these vulnerable weak points with these little settlements that don't have garrisons uh, that you have to protect. And it, it, I think it's easier to do things like cutting 
enemies off yes. from things they need. Like, it actually supports a much more strategic campaign map. That's a really like, good point. You can start people and it's, out. Yeah, it's actually pretty clever, and I don't think the campaign map has ever been this good, just from a, from a, a military perspective anyway. Um, obviously, the economic stuff has just been tossed out the window. There's no real like need to think about trade, uh, diplomacy. It's like, well, you're going to be at war with everyone anyway. Um, but for the actual, when you're controlling your armies throughout that map, it's a lot more interesting having it... Um, spread out basically do you think that's a good trade-off do you think it was do you think it was necessary to to strip out this much of the empire management absolutely not i think they actually like they realized i I think i don't think anyone at creative assembly thought that their like diplomacy or trade was really up to snuff but i think this like just scrapping it essentially is just a really bad idea because it means there's very little to actually do when it comes to looking after your empire um so yeah basically it feels like the the military stuff has become it's always been the focus and it's been given the most attention but stripping out all the other stuff was a was probably a bad call it does make it a brisker campaign though if you uh, if you just want to have a, a total war experience and not have to schedule many many hours then i guess this one works but mm. yeah i i <laughs> never had a campaign go past 120 turns and that's including like the end game invasion thing mm. um but the the thing i wanted to say about the like minor settlements and starving people out which really ties into the idea that i think this is it's kind of a story of two games because the early game is one thing and then like the mid and late game is something different entirely. In the early game, all this stuff they talked about in the press and like all this stuff that they really wanted this game to represent, I think it works really well. Like, okay, if I lose a major farming settlement, that's bad because suddenly I have, you know, famine sweeping my empire and unrest is going to go up and everything. Um, I don't know if they balance the game past turn 50 at all. <laughs> I played one game on hard and one on very hard. So, I mean, maybe it's just that I need to be playing on legendary at this point. I don't know. But it feels like mid and late game, I was like, oh, uh, yeah, this faction declared war on me and uh, they're taking my farm settlements. Um, so now I have uh, just 380 excess food per turn instead of 400. Um, I'm going to send my 19 full army stacks to kill them. Like there's there's like nothing that that prevents you from snowballing and the snowballing in this game is among the most ridiculous I've seen in any Total War game uh, as you get, you know, more and more land by the time you control like even a quarter of the map it's just you're swimming in resources and like I never felt that the in- internal pressure was there to counterbalance that at all. I mean, I talked to you, Rob and I talked, we talked about this a little bit that like, I never felt like I had a general whose loyalty dropped down and I didn't just have an estate to throw oh, him God, to make okay. him happy again. Yeah. So yeah. we need to get to this too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have never seen like, it is at once a really, I think 
clumsily laid out game from an interface exp- like from from the like from an interface standpoint like this is a very clunky game to figure out like who is where and like how to connect them to their position on the map and Absolutely. and then their relationship with whatever the land that they're currently on is or could be based on the way they develop uh but then there's also this aspect of uh Thrones of Britannia where it feels like that when Thrones of Britannia sleeps, it dreams of being Crusader Kings. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this element. And now other Total War games have had this, and it's worked actually decently well uh, in other Total War games in the distant, distant past where you would have generals had loyalty uh, numbers. And a thing you could definitely have happen is that a really awesome general would sort of get too big for his britches uh, and start to think like, well, why should I continue to serve? Um, Shogun too. This thing, this sort of thing would happen to me all the time, where I had like a tremendous general whose loyalty was questionable, and then I was sort of torn between like, on the one hand, this person's going to help me win wars, I'm going to give them a huge army, uh, but on the other hand, this this person could turn on me, and then I've got a big big problem. So I don't want to actually give them the best army I've got, and those were cool dilemmas. Here. Loyalty is in the game, uh, so characters can sort of defect from you theoretically, uh, but the thing that seems to drive loyalty almost entirely, uh, with the exception of like certain like sort of narrative events or things that can happen with a character, um, the main thing that seems to determine how loyal a character is, is where they stand in terms of uh, land claims relative to your ruler. And this is where, like, I think this is a really weird system. Uh, I, also think, I also think, in terms of function, it ends up being really, really dumb. Uh, but basically, like, this rule of thumb has never treated me wrong in Thrones of Britannia at all. As long as a noble is within one land claim, one title, one estate of my ruler... Their loyalty is basically assured. The moment we conquer a bunch of territory and those new estates fall into my king's hands, until my king hands them out as like spoils of war, every general becomes disloyal. And it's then, instant though. Yep, yep. It? It's the most insane thing. And, it, and the thing is, it doesn't get explained. And because it's not that logical. I remember after my first massive victory, I wiped my enemy out, took all their land, and I was like, yay, everyone's going to love me. I'm the best king. Nope. Everyone is furious. And I'm like, why the fuck is everyone furious? And I see it's because I've got like 10 estates. And the moment I'd start divvying them out, everyone's happy again. Uh, yeah, it's like if and Cassius the problem... bums a smoke off Caesar, and that's the end of the play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like the pro, the thing is, like in Crusader Kings, there's there's this kind of push and pull that goes on because you can hand out titles to make people happy, but then that also makes them more powerful. And if they're ambitious, uh, you know, they're they're going to be more likely to rebel. But it doesn't seem like giving your generals or your governors estates and thrones of Britannia at all makes them more likely to rebel or able to lead a more dangerous rebellion. So it's just like, 
oh, this guy's not happy yet. Here, I'll give him another estate. It's, Here, I'll give him another estate. It's Here, not I'll even give him like they have estate. any interaction with the estate. The estate doesn't no. even exist. Like, it's just it's just a title. Like, there's not even a thing where, like, oh, I don't really want to give them this one. This one's really <laughs> critical. This is an important, like, landhold. That's an economic center. None of that matters. It is literally just you're giving it, like, a little gold star on people's homework. And but what's crazy about that is there are titles you can give them as well. Oh, There's shit, a separate yeah. thing. And their wives and like their bribes. There's this like whole system around influence and loyalty. And it's actually like the system's fine, but then you put in estates and you're like, well that kind of just just the same as giving them titles, but you have to give everyone some estates and constantly keep this balance but it's not too difficult because with every victory you get new estates it's yeah and as long as your king doesn't keep any estates and everyone gets one or once you're a big empire everyone's got three estates or something all your main players have three it doesn't matter there's no there is no strategic or like narrative tension in the loyalty system um, well, there is there is one sort of wrinkle, which is when, because they'll get jealous about someone else's influence or someone with influence will think, well, they are owed more. And definitely and when there are maybe crises going on, maybe a, a king has died, so you've got an heir has become king, then things can become problematic if someone's got like more influence than the heir had or... And or someone will be like, no, I should be the heir. If you like adopt someone and they're a powerful general right. and you don't name them an heir, uh, they might start plotting against your other heir. So there are little moments where it becomes you're like, oh, actually, this is quite like CK2. Uh, it just doesn't really follow through that much. And and the estates thing, where you can just fix influence problems so quickly. Uh, you can also take them away from people as well if they're getting too influential. Uh, you can remove states from people to maybe dole them out to uh, generals you actually like. Yeah, but like every character is so passive in this, it's mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of crazy to me. Uh, the other thing that the other thing I find interesting about Thrones of Britannia is that. In some ways, it looks like a lot like a conventional Total War game, but then it's really funny the ways in which it decides to start breaking away from mechanical conventions that have become pretty commonplace in the series. Um, and I don't know, for some reason, I did not like the way characters leveled up uh, in this game. Actually, there are two things I didn't love. One is there's this really sharp dichotomy between generals and governors. Um, I didn't like basically those were two career tracks that never overlapped uh at all for me uh like once governors were in place i just left them there and gave them enough titles to keep them happy and loyal uh and basically gave them whatever the each time a character levels up unlike in the uh the warhammer games where there are like specific archetypes or classes that heroes and characters belong to that they can level up skills within um the way it works in this game is every character is drawing from the same list of like eight different skills basically they can they can add or like in the form of members of their retinue so you can hire 
like a new scribe for a character, I guess, and their governance goes up by a point, which gives a 5% increase to provincial income. Uh, or you can give them a forager, uh, which gives them, I think, a plus like five to supply, depending on the region they're in. Little things like that that have immediate and clear application uh, you know, for, for what you might want to do with that, with that character. But it all feels really, really generic. And it made veteran characters less interesting to me. I don't know. They've got traits as well, though. I mean, I, I, I agree that the follower system's not that great, doesn't have much flavor. I do like how it integrates a lot of agent mechanics, though, so you don't need agents. Because I, I, I like heroes in Warhammer. I think they're pretty good. But the plain vanilla historical uh, Total War agents have always been shit. And uh, I don't really miss having these extra units on the board that, yeah, they're no. just, they're not that, the stuff they do, we've, this game has shown can be done just as easily by a general or a governor. Um, I did actually have uh, a few characters who went from general to governor or governor to general. Okay. Uh, there was there was one that had he was like in his sixties and he'd be the governor like his entire sort of career in the game. And uh, then there was uh a civil revolt, we lost the city, he fled, and he ended up being like a marauding general during this war, just murdering everyone and got like a hell of a lot of traits. And went on to become like my most powerful general. Went and died when he was like seventy-five or something in the middle of a battle, after like fifteen years of just marauding. It was awesome. Yeah, I, I agree that the the level up system is is kind of weird. I feel like it's a uh, a mistake RPG designers make a lot too, where they give you like all these various skill trees. That's kind of like a kitchen sink approach. But then, like, only four or five of them are ever going to be useful to you at all. Um, which kind of, it didn't really feel like a choice. Like, obviously, if this guy's going to be a general, I'm going to max out his champion follower. Because that's going to give him the best retinue in the game. And I never felt pulled in another direction. It's like every every general I had on the map pretty much had, like, a, a max level champion and a max level bard by the time they reached level 10. Um, that might just be more my play style, but I don't, I didn't really see like a compelling reason to explore a lot of the other options. Um, Quartermaster movement speed was pretty clutch I found, but like, yeah, but again, but you're right. But for me, it was, it wasn't bard and champion. It was champion quartermaster, but like there are clearly things where it's like, oh, you want this. Yeah. Which, by the way, movement speed, that kind of one of the interesting things about the smaller scale of the map, and it's the fact that it's still four turns per year, is that it takes, like, multiple years to walk from Portsmouth to Inverness when, like, a normal person could do that in less than three months. <laughs> Which I <laughs> kind of kind of pulled me out of the immersion a little bit from time to time. Like, oh yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna sail over to Ireland. We'll be there in about two years. So... I, I wonder if maybe a like a monthly turn timer wouldn't have worked better for, you know, if they're going to zoom in the map, they should be zooming in the time scale as well. There's uh, it really rankled with, um, yeah, the time scale thing would have been good. It really rankled with um, naval movement for me because like 
something that I would have liked the game to feel a feeling I would have liked more from this game, I should say, is the feeling that like, particularly when it comes to Vikings, that like these armies, these raids are coming down like a lightning bolt, right? Like you're, you're, yeah. like you're deployed inland, you are dealing with other stuff in the British Isles and then suddenly your coast is burning and there's an army like rampaging through there and you have to go sprint back there uh, and try to salvage what's left. That's not really what ever happens to me. Occasionally there's like a Viking raid, but first you like see it coming and occasionally you get so up... much warning, oh like a year God. of warning. Oh like my... it's in... <laughs> by the time they actually come, I'm like, fuck, I totally forgot about these guys. <laughs> Dude, like there was this, there was this raid where like, uh, yeah, they're going to make a landing in the South of England. And I was like, okay, so they appear in this, they appear East of Dover basically. And I'm like, oh shit, they're going to land. And then they start taking this like weirdly circuitous route all the way around, uh, like this, like all the way around the south of England uh, to land on the southwest edge. And in that time, I had built an entire new army in the south of England and had them camp so long that they were at first, they were at full strength. Like one of the other things they try to do in this game to. I think reward a little bit of forethought and planning and maybe make the consequences of battle a little more sticky is that army production and reinforcement both take quite a bit longer than they have in the past. Like it's not like you raise a new army and each new unit that joins after it meets its build time joins at full strength. It's more like, you know, you sort of call the banners uh, mm-hmm. you create units, and then slowly those units fill up to their uh, you know, establishment strength, basically. Um, and I think that's supposed to prevent you from doing things like, oh, shit, there's Vikings. <laughs> I, like, yeah. And they've got nobody to deal with it. That's going to be a real problem. But things take so long to develop in this game because England is massive uh, that... Yeah, you have plenty of time to, like, you know, not only do you see the Viking raid coming, you have a chance to, like, build the perfect army to counter it, and then just sort of be hanging out on the shore waiting for it by the time it lands. Like, it's really underwhelming and silly, uh, and sort of counter, I think, to some of the objectives of of the game design. They actually said with the the recruitment stuff, the idea was to make it impossible to just... Build, rapidly build like a massive army. Uh, so they wanted more smaller armies and actually thinking about unit composition more. And I think in the early game that kind of works because you've only got like two farms. Some Even if you're playing uh, Wessex, I think you don't start off with a massive amount of food. You just start off with the ability to quickly expand. So in a yeah. few turns you will. But everyone pretty much starts off with, a, with shit food stores. Um, so you do have to wait. But as, as TJ mentioned before, you get so powerful by like turn 50 uh, or before that to be if you're playing Wessex by turn 10 you're invincible yeah, um, yeah so you never have these restraints you never have to think oh there's no way I can just make three big armies at one time because I don't have the food you totally have the food and it doesn't take too long for them to actually muster and while you're waiting, you can still move them around you can still fight with them I actually think it's great because I think it means that you have agile armies um, and you're not actually just waiting around. You're not 
waiting for people to muster, you can still do things, but it doesn't make it harder. It makes it so much easier. Yeah, I mean the first the first like 25 to 30 turns of this game are so good. Mm-hmm. Like if I felt the the same amount of pressure throughout the entire campaign that I did when I'm like all right, I have a specific number of regiments that I can raise based on how much food I'm producing and that's all I'm going to get. Like if if I had those constraints through the whole game, I think I would be eager to say that this is one of the best Total War games. But the fact that it, it completely falls apart after a certain point, um, I will say that I did have a situation, it was one of the highlights of playing through for the review, where I had a, a faction with three full-stack armies declare war on me unexpectedly when all of my armies were like at least four turns away. And I had to, for a second, think about, okay, I'm not going to save everything. I have to actually think in times of number of turns, how many of these little settlements am I going to let them have? And then based on that pick where I was going to raise my defensive armies, and I ended up even even having done that calculation, I ended up having to go into battle with them not at full strength, which I thought was great. Like, that's something that almost never happens in Total War. Like, this is a half-strength unit of spearmen, and they're gonna have to hold this part of the village. Like they're they're going in, you know, under equipped and underfed, and and they just have to do their best. And that was a great battle. It was like a nail biting victory where I was like, are are these, you know, newly mustered levy troops going to be able to hold the village? And I would have loved to have had more experiences like that throughout the mid game and the late game because it is really cool just having to go to war with the army you have, not the army you want, as as the saying goes. I find myself creating these sorts of situations. Because yeah, like you almost for, have to like force it to happen so you can have more fun. Yeah, I, I adopted really powerful people and just so they would like <laughs> revolt against me because I wasn't going to make them air. Like I kept creating these, making these big obvious mistakes because I wanted civil wars and because I'm not sure if you guys, if you guys had this moment early on in the game where you just start seeing every turn like five kingdoms have been wiped out. Yep. Like, yeah. Oh, this map is quickly getting really boring. <laughs> yeah, I um I think that's the other problem and this is I think this is a problem I think that sort of started to dog Total War as a whole for a while, which is that um in these scenarios where they create a lot of small kingdoms and there's a handful or maybe even no like real superpowers to start out with, uh, it introduces a lot of randomness to the diplomatic system that starts to feel like, I think, kind of a bad chaos um, and also ends up to like really unpleasantly fast consolidation where like one of the reasons I think the mid game stops being fun is that there are a lot fewer of those really small chaotic wars being sort of scrapped out with tiny little armies uh, fighting in weird and random places. And it's starting to turn into more like, well, congratulations to those of us who survived the first 50 turns of this game. Uh, (laughs) Now it's time for like, just a few big battles between big armies in, in places you expect. And there's no real like outside participants because they've all been pretty much wiped out. Oh God. It's a battle Royale. Yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's total war. Last man standing. Um, (laughs) Like 
you know, I'll, I'll say like a game, like probably one of my favorite games playing this. And this, like for a while, this was one of my better Total War experiences in like quite some time, to be honest. Like since, uh, you know, the first Warhammer game, some of my, some of my better games in that one. Uh, I was playing as um, the Central Irish faction. I'm going to say Meath because I know that's the province they're pretty much like representing, but they don't yeah, start that's there. Right. Yep. Uh, so I'm going to say Meath. Um, and I'm playing as them. And you're right in the middle of Ireland and all hell is breaking loose around you and you've got enemies kind of in every direction. And the cool thing about that campaign was there wasn't all that much food on the map to start out with. So like supplies started getting really dicey and I wasn't very rich. And so like a good start wasn't really enough to give me enough soldiers and wealth to support enough armies to sort of secure all my conquests and borders. So I ended up playing this really long, uh, basically shell game against the other AI factions where like, I am frantically rushing to try to deliver knockout punches to people, not even to conquer like important territory, but just to like bloody their nose enough that they would sue for peace and back off. And I could wheel my army some other direction and take someone else out. And I was basically just racing back and forth, uh, with like increasingly depleted armies. Uh, and every once in a while, a disaster would befall me where like somebody just sneaks in and occupies one of my breadbasket cities. Uh, and suddenly, like, we're at a food deficit, and I can't support my armies, and they are out of supply, and now there are slow desertions, and so my armies are getting weaker at a time when I need them to be getting stronger. Uh, or I now have so many armies in the field that I've got, like, no money coming in, so I can't actually repair what's getting damaged over the course of this war. And this went on for ages. And it was really intense and really scary. And there were some, like, some of those great Total War battles, you know, where, like, you need to you need to get your general and his last, like, five guys out of a scrum. Because if he dies, you think you're going to lose this battle and probably the war. But at the same time, you're not sure you can get him out because, like, he's so stuck in and he might die as he runs. Uh, I had a lot of battles like that. And it was great. And it really did bring that campaign map to life. And the importance of sort of reading the road network and anticipating what sort of the lines of travel are on the map and uh, sort of taking white pieces with people where you could get them. That was all really cool. And that game only exists for a, like a heartbeat in this game. Yep. And then it starts to fade. And then you've got a lot of this territory that is differentiated, but it's not interesting to govern and so that, like, really dynamic military campaign you're fighting starts to get more static, and then you turn to, well, what's my strategic game that I'm playing? And it might be the worst strategic game that Total War has ever put out. Yeah. yeah they needed some kind of, like, some, some kind of mechanic that clamps down on you when you get big. There needed to be some kind of hazard to blobbing. That's what I really feel more, like was missing. More severe war weariness, war exhaustion, yes. whatever they want to call it. Because that barely... If you're playing in the default difficulty, firstly, don't. But also, there's barely <laughs> any real consequences. You should, yeah, you should explain that a little bit, because the, the, yeah, that top bar stuff is important. Yeah, it's... so. 
the idea is that people are meant to get antsy when you're not at war, encouraging you to fight more, but to stop wars going on infinitely, or to stop having these stupid wars where someone will declare war on you, but you'll never see them, but they'll never back down, um, you they get weary of war, and it starts getting more difficult to like supply your armies, keep that up, and you'll have... Uh, public order will go down, and just generally it'll create chaos because everyone's miserable. But they don't really care that much. Uh, whenever I'm doing a review, the first game is usually on, on a normal difficulty, and it just barely has any effect. And it, it does explain that it's more severe and harder difficulties, but it's it's not that severe. I never felt inspired to actually make a change to either sue for peace or to get in a war because the game was egging me on. I was getting in wars because it's total war and I'm pretty much always going to be in a war. And I wasn't stopping them because the wars are generally pretty easy to win in this. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to keep going until the other person sues for peace. It's, yeah, I felt that it didn't really seem to have um, as big an impact on the AI factions either. It happens to them as well. But I didn't feel like they were being pressured to make a peace treaty when they wouldn't otherwise do it. It's like, obvious, you're having your ass kicked. Of course, you're going to try and do something. Yeah, it, it just felt like a missed opportunity. Because yeah, I can see it's... what they try, were trying to do. I, I think that would have had a positive impact on the game. Yeah, and it's the, it's true of like all the campaign mechanics. Like the unique mechanic for um, the great Viking armies is that you have this like kind of balancing act of keeping the English happy and then keeping your Viking warbands happy. But even on hard, it seemed like they were just both sitting at like forty five to fifty for most of the mid and late game. Um, like it, it really wasn't hard to keep them both happy. I. I might have liked it a lot better if it was it was seriously like a single bar. And like when you make the Vikings happy, you make the English less happy. You can't have both. Um, and like even on top of that, like the couple times I dropped into the red with the English, because obviously this is me and I was mo mostly doing what would make the Warriors happy. Like the 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 penalties for that felt so negligible. Like I didn't feel like... I was in danger of having this like large nativist English uprising because, you know, I built a rune stone instead of a church. It just seemed like, well, we're going to go stand in the corner and fold our arms and scowl at you for the next few turns until, you know, you get an event that makes us happy again or, you know, you declare war on someone we don't like. Like they tried to throw all of these extra mechanics at the board and so many of them just end up being like borderline invisible. Oh, and it all feels like they're trying to compensate for the fact that there are no, that the AI factions do not have the capacity to develop into worthy adversaries that will challenge you into the late game. Like that's the other thing yeah. is they're trying to tie your shoelaces together uh, as the campaign unfolds, because you're not going to have like, if you're Alfred, for instance, you're not going to have an end game where you're encountering another Alfred. You know what I mean? And it's like down no. to the last two superpowers. Like the odds of another faction getting that strong and like enduring into the late game and challenging you on that level or even knowing what to do 
with that sort of strength or territory, right? Like the sheer number of times that I would be at war with somebody who like had a tremendous amount of territory under their control. And then I'd look at their strength rating and it was like garbage because they just hadn't developed anything. Like they would somehow have like the entire Midlands to themselves and they'd done nothing with it. They had no strength behind it. Um, And so because Thrones of Britannia really can't give you these, you know, end game bosses uh, being generated out of this dynamic system, what it's trying to do is give you a lot of little things that will trip you up. Um, But I'm not sure they really do work all that well. Like for all the prominence they're given in the UI, this notion that like uh, your Viking warriors are getting restless if it's been too long since they've raided something. Um, again, I didn't feel like, oh boy, I'm, I'm like my, my, like my chiefdom is in danger. Uh, if we don't start launching the longship soon, uh, that didn't, that like, it didn't really and what situation feel. wouldn't you already be launching the warships anyway? I mean, especially in this game, you're always really going to be at war. There's going to be very few turns where you're not doing something aggressive. Yeah, and and so like I I don't think that stuff ended up working out all that well. I didn't love a lot of the events that came in because they just because I felt so completely disconnected from the strategic layer and anything happening there. Like I lit like I would get these notices that like oh an icy gale is blowing in off the seas, four <laughs> buildings have been damaged, and I was like great, I do not care. I could not like yeah. like none of those buildings are people like there there there's nothing there. They are empty. Uh, they're they're barely interactive. Uh, so I'm not going to concern myself too much with them. Um, so you got you 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 have all of that. Uh, the one thing that I the tweak I do think I like is that they changed how rebellions work and they made it much less predictable as to when you'll have a revolt. And on the one hand, it plays into my larger problems with this game that like nothing is really that controllable and like just numbers appear on provinces and maybe there's buildings you can build that'll resolve that if those buildings are available in that province, but probably not. And you just need to keep an army there for a while or put put a governor mm-hmm. in charge with a priest. Um, but I did like this notion that instead of waiting for public order to count down a negative 100 and then automatically an army spawns to rebel and try to take control of the province, uh, instead public discontent is tied to like a rebellion chance. And I definitely had some campaigns with interesting curveballs appear where I was like, you know, there's only like a, there's only like a 10% chance of this province rebelling. So I'm going to pull these armies out because I need them on the front. I'm sure it's going to be fine. And then three turns later, there's a massive rebellion and like the linchpin farming center of that province is taken and suddenly my empire is running at a food deficit uh, again. Uh, although the two layers of food I didn't love. Like local food and then empire-wide food, I didn't love that system. Yeah, I, th- I think it was like it's I th- the way that I think it works is that if your empire is at a food deficit globally, you will suffer in provinces that are locally food negative. But the provinces that are locally food positive are fine, which I I didn't really mind that. I thought it was a little bit confusing to actually, you know, decipher how it worked. 
Um, um, the other thing I was going to mention, though, is that uh, the I do like the way that they've changed recruitment in general to where you don't have recruitment buildings. It's like this yeah. global pool that you have a limited number of guys to pull out of, which, again, put me in situations that Total War normally doesn't, where it's like, okay, I can only recruit you know, four units of Berserkers and the rest of this army is going to have to be crap spearmen. And I'm going to have to make do with that because that's what's available in my recruitment pool right now. Here's the thing, though. Your armies are always going to just mostly be just crap dudes with axes and spears. (laughs) I'm like, I'm going to piss off all the Total War history nerds, (laughs) says the guy with a bloody ancient history degree. But still, I... I absolutely am sick of these boring-ass soldiers. Just dudes with beards and spears. Like, I feel like we've been really spoiled with Warhammer. But I just feel like a bit of... A bit of colour. And you don't... Creative Assembly's whole thing is, like, it's meant to feel, like, authentic to history. It doesn't have to be accurate. It should be fun. And, yeah, I think going back to The Last Kingdom, that's not accurate to history it's it's <laughs> but it feels really authentic and badass and that's what i really want i'm not going to a lecture i'm not still in uni i'm wanting to play a game and i just where the I fuck like is my really... welsh gyrocopter <laughs> exactly where the fuck's my dragon where's alfred being like okay you know what we're really gonna have to deal with these vikings oh, you tra- take me to my royal you tra- dragon the king arthur quest line uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> There actually is a King Arthur questline. It's not nearly that interesting uh, when you're playing as the Welsh. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I did kind of like the way that kind of the relationship between different types of units on the battlefield has changed. It felt kind of interesting and different and new to me in that way. And that, you know, the the way they've implemented critical hits is kind of, it's changed the position of archers overall and how effective they are against different unit types. Um, But then, you know, to counterbalance that, they've got the shield wall where you can give up mobility for, you know, kind of immunity to arrows, which created some of those interesting sort of iconic Viking Age battles where, you know, I had, you know, uh, the enemy crashing into my shield wall. That's always fun to watch. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's like, I don't, I don't know if I can go back. No, I can go I back. Don't I don't really know it. if I, <laughs> I can, like if so I can go I, I back to the the mo- all the modes and the formations, all that stuff, and the actual way that the units worked. I totally, I I dig that, and I'm so glad that we've seen the return of formations. Oh my god! Uh, yeah. Thanks god. Such a relief, and all the 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 way they've put the the spotlight on shields is really cool. It's it feels appropriate, obviously, for the era. Um, I just like the tactical possibilities that it it it's, it's tactical possibilities and limitations. And I actually think it makes the battles a, a, quite a lot of fun. But I I just I'm thinking more about the aesthetics. Really, it's just they're so fucking boring. Ah. Okay, so here's here's my defense of this. I've actually gotten burned out on the Total Warhammer. Like I enjoyed it a lot in Total Warhammer One. I started enjoying it a little bit less in Total Warhammer Two. I think because I just didn't like a lot of the army design quite as much. Like it was getting more fanciful and less. Uh, I, I just love you know, I like the old world. I do. <laughs> oh, I do. It's so so fanciful, uh, <laughs> too whimsical for my game about rat <laughs> monsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but 
where I started to where it started to lose me a little bit uh, is just like every unit had to be its own like special weird ass thing, uh, and so it started to feel very MOBA like cool. and how the armies can, controlled. Uh, like it just it just started to feel like no longer was I playing something that was sort of descended from a tactical war game. I was playing something much more of a, yeah, I mean, the MOBA analogy is, I think, a decent one. Uh, it was feeling a lot more like, uh, here, here, control these different, you know, sets of lords, basically, that are running around the map <laughs> uh, and, and use their special abilities uh, as best you can to sort of keep the enemy at bay. Um, and... I kind of just like that we're back to a... You see those spearmen? Fucking flank those guys. Just flank those guys. <laughs> send some guys with swords and axes in there. It'll sort those spearmen out. But don't let them get at your cavalry unless they're turned the wrong direction. In which case, yeah, send that cavalry in. It's kind of nice just to return to that. I also do like... I like that these armies feel shitty. In some ways, like I like yeah. that they feel like, oh man, that's a lot of levy spearmen. Because then, when like the royal thanes go in, uh, yes. you know, or the it does make the elite units feel more elite. Yeah, yeah. but exactly. without making them but... cartoonish hero units, right? That's the cool thing. Yeah. Is like it starts to feel. But like... I'm not really saying it needs to be just like war. I think, and the fact is, it would be stupid to do that because then it's almost like they're competing against yeah. each other. Um, but what I mean is more just more character to these units, more personality. Uh, it, I just feel that it's so easy to look at your army and be like, it is just a dude, a bunny, one dude over and over again. <laughs> With some spears. There is a lot of, <laughs> like, there's, like, three gradients of every unit type that feels mm. super meaningless in some ways. Like, do you want shitty swordsmen, decent swordsmen, <laughs> or good <laughs> swordsmen? And it's like... That's the variety. I'm it's going like, to buy the And they look basically the same. Yeah. No, it's... And I, I think it's a bit of a... I think that is a bit of a problem because... um Again, like once we were away from those early game scenarios where I was like, oh, I just got to draft a bunch of levy quality troops and uh, just eat that for a while. Again, as the game went on, I was increasingly like raising troops with long enough gaps that I was like, oh, looks like I got, uh, looks like the there's more Thanes available. Looks like there's more Huskarls available. That's cool. Uh, get more of those, please. Uh, and you, shitty javelin guy. Uh, you you can hang back, just just hang loose. Uh, we'll figure out something for you to do. And so that did start to become a problem. Like again, my early game armies were pretty cool because like the decision to send in those royal companions or the mailed long axemen was really meaningful because it was like if these it was like sending is like Napoleon sending in the guard, right? Yeah. It's like if these guys do not yeah. shatter that formation, we are doomed. But if they do, this is going to be a massacre. And that felt really, really good. Uh, there probably wasn't enough of that, especially as the game continued. Yeah, I mean, in, in Attila or like Age of Charlemagne, if I'm playing as, as one of the Norse factions, my answer to where should I deploy the berserkers is everywhere. <laughs> because by the end of the game, my entire army is berserkers. So berserkers just feel like that's... That those are our troops, but then like in this one, it's like I have one or two units of berserkers, 
So yeah, it is an interesting tactical decision. Where and when am I going to deploy the Berserkers? I found myself using reserves a lot more rather than just throwing my whole line mm -hmm. at the enemy like I usually do in Rome Cavalry's 2. Cool. And uh, I liked how I really yeah. like the changes to cavalry actually, and that Big time. they're so much of a trade-off because they're so fragile if you get them in a bad situation. It's crazy it's how quickly not... you can just entirely see a whole cavalry unit wiped out. Yeah, yeah. They, it's they're not these kind of like masters of the battlefield that they are in some other Total War eras. You really have to use them carefully and intelligently. And at the back for that first charge, it's like you kind of feel almost sorry for them because they're just like, oh no, it's just dudes with shields and spears. <laughs> Fuck, guys. Let's just turn around and go. Home. Well, and I like that um, <laughs> real, like heavy cavalry is super rare in this game. And so for mm -hmm. a long time, it really does feel like you don't really have proper cavalry. You've got dudes on horses with some weapons. And, like, yeah. they kind of move and control like that, too, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. the formations are super loose. Uh, they, like, it takes forever to sort of corral them into, uh, like, an orderly formation for maximum impact. Uh, otherwise, you got to back them all the way out of combat, give them, like, a couple minutes to, like, cool down, like, slowly, like, get back in position, do it again. It's, it's a cool thing because, like, you can't just do that cavalry cycle that you could do in a lot of other Total Wars where it's like charge, impact, pull out, charge, yep. impact. Uh, like once cavalry are committed, it takes a little while to extract them and get them ready for another charge. And uh, it's made some for some really interesting cavalry skirmishes that take place mm -hmm. like separate from the battle where it's like people are sort of waiting for each other to commit their cavalry and you're starting to chase like they're heavy heavy cavalry's in so you send in your shit like light cavalry or your 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 ranged cavalry to just try to like harass them and pin them down long enough for your slower horsemen to catch them there're all sorts of cool little battles like that uh that that I really enjoyed in this game well and it it added some texture to the end game invasion too because if you're playing on one of the higher difficulties, you actually end up fighting the Normans, and suddenly it's like, oh, the tactics I've been using, I'm, I'm going to have to adapt, <laughs> because now I'm fighting people who actually do have good cavalry. And it's it sort of creates this last-minute adjustment of your tactical thinking that I thought was kind of cool, even though on a strategic level I wasn't super impressed with how they implemented that endgame invasion stack stuff. Oh, it was because, and it doesn't help that the the point that you have to get to for that to happen is way after you've already effectively won the game, right? Right. Because you're so strong, and it just feels like you're just waiting for you're waiting to get the they call it the ultimate victory. Um, but I I don't know how quickly it happened for you, Rob, when you played as Wessex. TJ, did you play Wessex as oh, well? We play what short campaign victory? Yeah, <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, what I the fuck does it even mean? Because it's just so stupid. And yet there's so something I profoundly demoralizing about short... it. I yeah. know. I got my first short victory in turn 20. Yep. Yeah, it was and... about, the, about the same for Northumbria, actually, because yeah. they start with quite a bit of land. And I, so I had like three short victories by turn 35, and I was just like, fuck off. This is... <laughs> I was so angry. It's a I'm weird like, thing. The like, world is meaningless. Britan like Thrones of Britannia justly perhaps fears you're going to get bored with it 
<laughs> and so every campaign has all these like bailing out points seated throughout them uh, that basically are like, yeah, that seems that's a, that's a campaign, right? Yeah, you should probably just start over because uh, it's not that we don't have a mid or late game. We we do, but if you wanted to quit right now, you could say you won. Just putting that out there. The best victory I got, I got it because, um, oh, it was Mercia, right? Mercia basically just gave itself to me. Because yeah. <laughs> you've got the whole long-standing thing. It's like, yeah, you can inherit it. And it, it, it's like, ooh, but will they accept your reign? And will they rebel? No, they're pretty chill about it, actually. And I won the game. Yeah, and... <laughs> And then there's the, the prestige victory, which is the victory you get accidentally on the way to the yeah, other victory fame. conditions. It's, it's fame, fame, I think they call that's it. it. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Get fame, the, you get fame by playing the game that you're playing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, those victory conditions you should just ignore. Just play as much as you want. <laughs> you're just you're painting Britain your color. That's really <laughs> what the game is. Um. Yeah, like that stuff was was super silly. The fact that it was like, yeah, you're done. This is good enough. Like, and it, the problem is, it felt hard for me to continue after that. Like, it's sort of like when you get a victory in seven, it's like you could keep playing, but I don't know. Like, game's kind of over. That's for sure how it felt <laughs> as Wessex, because like at that point, I was already like, it was like turn twenty five, and I was a superpower basically. I was like, yeah, okay, it's definitely less of an next? issue if you play it's... a smaller faction. You know, it's it's very historically accurate in the sense that you know, uh, uh, eleven stacks under Harold Herdrada from Norway showed up, and then um, you know, Harold Godwinson went and killed them, and then eleven stacks under William the Conqueror showed up, and Harold Herdrada went down, or Harold Godwinson went south, and he lost. And then he raised 14 more armies in the Midlands with his infinite food and money and went and kicked William's ass. That's how it happened, right? That's, that's, yeah. That's, that's pretty much, yeah. well, yeah, I mean, as he yeah. memorably <laughs> said before the, uh, you know, Battle of Hastings, he was like, don't worry about this one, guys. Uh, this is a playoff best of seven. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like I, because I, we've been pretty negative overall. That's because it's think. a bad game, um, to be honest. It's, but see, I don't think it is. I'm once again realizing, fuck, I gave it like 73. I should say some nice things. <laughs> this has stealthed its way into being another Rome too. It's, hey, it's what did more TJ, fun to talk about it, what it did wrong yeah, than it is to TJ, talk about what did, what it you did give okay. It? I gave what? it a 78. So, Fucking you know. hell, TJ gave it a 78. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Everyone, on, everyone on Twitter, pick on TJ, not me. Yeah. All uh-huh. right. That's who the harassment campaign should you be directed would, You wouldn't towards. catch me and Rowan doing this shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like I, I I get what you're saying. Like to an extent, it's fine. It's fine as a total war game. Like this is a durable franchise. Like it is hard to fuck up so well and truly that like there's no fun to be had here. And like when this game is good, it is very good. Um but at the same time, I've never felt more like it accidentally backs into being good. Uh, yeah. And then, like, it's got nothing on like Attila. I think it's it's considerably worse than both the Total uh, Total War Warhammers. Uh, I think it's still a little bit better than Rome Two or Rome. Sorry, original Rome Two, because I I'd argue that Rome Two got pretty pretty good. The really damning thing for me is like 
I would recommend playing the Norska campaign and Warhammer over this if you want a Viking experience. Like, I'm yeah, like, of course. Uh, Norska's yeah. way better. But the Norska campaign or, in Warhammer is really fucking good. <laughs> or any of the Northern European factions in Attila, for yeah. that matter. Um, the one other thing I will say for it, though, is... I do think that the faction diversity adds some good replayability because even after I finished the review, even after I had played three campaigns and been like, uh, the mid game is bullshit. There is no late game. Um, I'm, uh, you know, that was such an underwhelming experience. I was like, okay, reviews turned in. I kind of want to see what the Welsh are up to. I kind of want to see what they're about. And I played, you know, until it got boring, at least as the Welsh. And I probably am going to go back just to try out, Ireland at some point. Ireland, that's Peter, good. it's May 2018. How have you had time to go back to a game? <laughs> are you not playing Battletech? Get to work, mate. This is What's insane. Are you not playing Battletech? Do you guys not have better things I, to do? I was doing Pillars of Eternity too. I had to jump straight from like Total War to Pillars of Eternity. That yeah, it's, it's like we've, we've both had like these near misses with Battletech, I think, just because we've had other assignments. Yeah, I had to turn it down, unfortunately, because I was really interested in playing that. You fools. But I want it I, I do I need to say good things. I've got a list. <laughs> Wait, could you have been the one um, to review it for RPS and just get ahead of that whole situation? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, lo- loved Alec. Totally get what he meant. He also did say that after like downloading a bunch of things that sped it up he actually enjoyed the game considerably more. Uh, I do think it is super slow watching those turns go by. It can be really aggravating. Um, well, anyway, that was Fraser Brown. Uh, night, everybody. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the thing, that, and it's TJ mentioned it as well, uh, the diversity. So yeah, the diversity of the army sucks, but the actual diversity of the cultures is pretty good. And the way that you actually feel these different factions are connected by their cultures is pretty cool. Uh, the way they will, even though they are often opposed to each other, um, they will unite at certain times uh, um, and kind of form alliances against certain enemies. Uh, like the Vikings will all kind of work together to murder all the Irish, <laughs> things like that. I like these little, these little connections that different factions have. Am I the only one? No, no, no. I, I, I do. Like, <laughs> I, I liked the, fa- the the way that it felt like when you were fighting one Viking faction, it was only a matter of time before you're probably fighting all of them. Um, that was kind of cool. I like the fact that the different geographic parts of the map feel like their own different like game worlds almost. Like, Ireland just feels strategically completely uh divorced from what you're dealing with up in scotland uh for instance which which is itself uh an entirely different kettle of fish than what you've got around uh you know the thames estuary like these are cool little places uh that that you end up fighting in and trying to figure out uh how to sort of strategically navigate there yeah there are things that you can find to love in this game and there are a few things that i found to to love in this game i am just gobsmacked by the big misses yeah and it, i think it it comes back to i think what i said right at the start is that it doesn't it almost doesn't justify being a spin-off it tries all of these experiments but then holds back a little bit almost like it's still trying to be too much like 
total war. And this is an opportunity for it to be something really different. It's a spin-off. Why are you shackling yourself to the main game? Yeah. Yeah, I think it ultimately comes down to it just doesn't feel like they tested the late game really at all. <laughs> no, and that concerns me because the thing that I had a concern, like a worry about with the Total War sagas is that I didn't want it to become like budget line Total War. Like, I like the idea of it being yeah. a cool, um, a cool, like, strategically innovative, creative, uninhibited space for Total War to do more things like we see in Fall of the Samurai or the Peninsular uh, campaign uh, or in, you know, the Belisarius uh, expansion for Attila or just Attila in general. Like, I was hoping it would be a place to explore those ideas and make really tailor-made specific scenarios uh, about interesting points in history uh, with some you know, like bespoke mechanics to, to sort of drive that action. And I see like gestures in that direction with this game, but it's all so undercooked and it adds up to so little from like a, you know, flavor and style standpoint that this does end up feeling like, Oh, so now Total War has a C team. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you think, like, how, what do you think the cadence of these? Because we're going to see more Warhammer. We know that we've got another Warhammer game coming after they do all the DLC. Yeah. We know we've got another mainline Total War in, in, in Total War. What's it called again? Uh, Three Kingdoms. Three Kingdoms. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was just remember it's Total War China. Um, and also, we've got now these sagas. I'm just wondering what the cadence of them is going to be. Like, are we going to get... Because does um, uh, the Kingdoms one have a release date or window it's, at the moment? I think it's October. At least that's what I'm remembering. But it does seem like they're wanting to do a yearly major Total War game. Like, yeah. it'll be a, a fantasy Which one and then a major historical one. terrible idea. Then a saga, yeah. That's capitalism. <sighs> <laughs> no it does it, 3ma goes socialist it, it does it, it does feel a little bit like we are going to aggressively work these fields now we are going to bring in yeah. rich harvests of total war and total war content uh every year um are we gonna do an episode for all of them yes fraser <laughs> yes uh because you are going to oh. have to defend your uh, I'm just going to give these games. <laughs> one, one other thing I do want to say: it runs like an absolute dream, which Warhammer Two very much does not on my yeah, system. Yeah, it is. I, I so I appreciated yeah, that. that. I find that Warhammer surprising. Two in big battles chugs like, like a an old school steam engine, and uh, I did not have any chugging whatsoever in, uh, except for chugging mead with my Viking warriors. Uh, in Total suck, War, DJ. in a you, Total you, War you saga, Thrones of Britannia. All right. Well, that will do it for this <laughs> saga uh, of an episode. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted in the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. 
Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Rooms Ahead. Until then, for TJ, for Fraser, this is Rob Zachney saying, 73, Fraser? God damn it. <laughs> <laughs>